Hi, welcome to the Indie Wine Podcast, episode 29. My name is Matt Wood. Today we'll be looking at the history of grape growing and winemaking in the Mission San Jose and Fremont area of California. This time we're going even further back and following this area, beginning with the pre-mission period, the missions, the rancho period, the gold rush, and the American period. Vineyards were planted here early, and the area was a powerhouse of agriculture for a time. We'll revisit some of the names from other episodes on early California wine also. This is a story of changing times, new groups continually replacing old groups, and that cycle continuing, and what parts of history we learn, and what gets discarded along the way. Here we go. Fremont, California lies across the San Francisco Bay and south of San Francisco, the city. It's near the bottom of the bay in what is now Alameda County. Looking at the Bay Area on a map, today we'll be in the southwest portion. Fremont and its neighboring Milpitas sit on the edge of Santa Clara Valley and border San Jose to the south, the bay waters to the west, and the coastal hills to the east that rise to over 2,500 feet in elevation. A pass through these mostly undeveloped hills connects it to the wine-growing region of the Livermore Valley, only about 20 minutes or so away. Today, you're much more likely to see hang gliders and mountain bikers than the bears and mountain lions that used to roam the area. It wasn't until 1956 that Fremont became a city by combining five townships. Most of the land we discuss today eventually became part of Fremont. It takes its name, of course, from John C. Fremont, the controversial explorer, general, and senator. I'm going to leave his description at that because I have enough asides and detours in this episode already, but you can look him up if you want to know more. Despite being an early, important, and large producer of grapes and wine, that industry is all but abandoned today. A few of the characters in our story return from episodes 24 and 26 about the University of California experiment stations. If you haven't heard those episodes, they would be a good listen, either before or after this one. The Mission San Jose and Fremont area reside on Ohlone land. The Ohlone lived here in mostly fixed villages in the territory of Hushan for approximately 10,000 years. The native people lived here in harmony with the land, managing their resources and trading with tribes of the neighboring lands. The Ohlone inhabited an area from the coasts of San Francisco down past Monterey, mostly between the coast and the California coast range of mountains. They were composed of 50-plus groups with similar languages and customs. Chicano was the main language spoken in the area we are concerning ourselves with today. Tulis were plentiful in the area and provided materials for homes, boats, and beautiful and intricate baskets. Much of their diet was composed of acorns, fruits, nuts, and seeds, as well as fish, reptiles, insects, deer, and other game animals. They practiced prescribed burns for seed germination and belonged to the land. Shortly before Mission San Jose was founded, there were believed to be about 2,500 Ohlone living in the area. Everything started to change as Spanish colonialism moved northward. 
Although the Ohlone had encountered other expeditions previously for the past 200 plus years, this one would be more permanent. Mission San Jose was founded on June 11, 1797, in what is now present-day Fremont by Father Furman Francisco de Laswin. This was an expansion phase for the church, and after this 14th mission, three additional ones were founded the same summer. Portions of the Ohlone population had previously been baptized at Mission Santa Clara, 15 miles to the south. They served as labor for building this new mission. Constructing the mission from handmade adobe bricks for the five-foot-thick walls and first-growth redwood taken from the Oakland Hills. This was one of the larger missions, and much labor was needed to construct the dozens of buildings. By 1800, there are approximately 300 living at the mission. The Ohlone were referred to as costeños, or coastal people, by the Spanish. Once they converted to Christianity, they were called neophytes. Life changed drastically once you became a neophyte. Your life was mostly controlled by the fathers and alcaldes at the mission. Meals, jobs, and education all timed by the mission bells. Forced labor and punishments including beatings, lashing, and branding were common. Fathers themselves would be suspect if they tried to learn Chocano. Mission San Jose was in trouble more than most of the missions for their treatment of the native population. Villages and customs and a way of life decimated by the missions and new diseases, cramped living conditions, and strange and insufficient new diets doing the rest. The population loss was immense. It's been estimated between a quarter and a third of the neophytes would die each year. Carpentry, building, leatherwork, animal husbandry, ranching, and farming were common jobs for the neophytes. Like at most of the California missions, in addition to fruit trees, vegetables, and grain, there were grapes planted for wine and brandy. Cuttings of the mission grape most likely arrived on the ship San Antonio with Don Jose Camacho commanding on May 6, 1778. They were planted in 1779 at Mission San Juan Capistrano, south of Los Angeles, the vines working their way up north as the missions expanded. The vineyards at Mission San Jose flourished until 1836 with the secularization of the missions by the Mexican government. Just over 11,000 vines had been planted at the mission, making it one of the more productive winemaking sites, but dwarfed by Mission San Gabriel's 163,000 vines. Father Narcisco Duran was said to have produced good brandy and very good angelica from these grapes, though he thought Mission San Gabriel produced the finest wines in the system. He was also the first to record the name of the McCullumney River in 1817. John C. Fremont gave it its first modern spelling. Winemaking in Alta California at the time was rudimentary, but recognizable if you squint. Grapes were first harvested into woven baskets by the Native American neophytes. Sharp knives were rare, and the clusters were mostly pulled off the vine by hand and dropped into the baskets. The grapes in the early days would be dumped onto a platform made of bound saplings with a well-cured cowhide stretched across the bottom. Holding onto poles to keep their balance and nearly naked with cloths tied around their foreheads, arms, and wrists for sweat protection and wicking, the neophytes would crush the grapes until the juice drained into the cowhide. The first fermenters, or when they were short on barrels, which was nearly always, were also cowhides. 
These bags were made by coating the hides with pitch and sewing them up. The side that previously held the animal's hair would be on the inside, like a large boda bag. Fresh bags were made for every year's harvest so they would remain pliable for the expanding gases and the active fermentations. The original primitive presses were essentially large wooden nutcrackers that would have pressure applied, or a simple beam-style press that weight could be attached to. Like today, the presses would be used before or after fermentation depending on the wine style desired. The large platforms were eventually replaced with sloping brick floors, the hide bags replaced with barrels or stone and brick fermenters, and the presses with basket presses. We don't know all the details about the winery at Mission San Jose, but we can look at the larger Mission San Gabriel winery for inspiration. It consisted of a 14 by 20 foot room where the treading would take place, the juice running into a well at the lowest corner before being transferred to the cowhide or barrels for fermentation and aging. The grape yield at San Gabriel was estimated at two to three tons per acre. Winemaking and storage was tough on the frontier, and as you can imagine, keeping unfortified wine in these conditions was variable at best. It's estimated that close to half the wine production was later distilled into brandy, some for fortifying wines and some as aguardiente brandy to extend the shelf life. Mission San Jose was the coolest location of the Mission vineyards, and although the viticulture was praised by travelers, the unfortified winemaking wasn't always. The best early wines were said to have been sweet and reminiscent of a Malaga wine, so it's most likely Angelica. In addition to these sweet wines fortified with brandy produced at the Mission, they would make a sweet, unfortified white wine, fermenting only the juice of the Mission grape, as well as dry and sweet versions of unfortified red wines. These would generally be drunk as soon as possible and until the next year's harvest was ready to drink. We have to imagine these storage conditions would be suspect at times. The missions were mostly self-sufficient, so the viticulture and winemaking process would have varied between them due to local resources, labor, and ingenuity. Given the choice, old ways won out whenever possible. The only book on the subject we know they used was written in 1513, over 200 years before the missions started. Angelica could age almost indefinitely. A Wine Spectator editor praised an 1875 vintage that he drank in 1975. We do have a recipe from Emile Vacher for Angelica from 1891 for the best procedure for obtaining a wine that clarifies rapidly and naturally. Vacher was a winemaker in Southern California starting in 1880. The Angelica name was likely not familiar to the Franciscans, but that's what we call it now. The instructions specify that Mission is the only grape that should be used and should be harvested at 26 bricks. If it does get overripe, say to 28 or 30 bricks, you can bring the sugar down by adding a little burger grape to the mix. They should be crushed and kept on skins for 12 to 20 hours, being careful that fermentation doesn't start. Fortifying the must to 20% alcohol with 180 proof brandy will kill the yeast and give you about 14% sugar when finished. 3 gallons juice to 1 gallon brandy is the approximate mixture. I've seen others say 2 thirds wine to 1 third brandy was a common blend also. You're told to age it for 4 months. 
It's important to note that the Angelica was made by fortifying the must before fermentation starts. This process is currently illegal in California, however. Despite the backbreaking work they put into caring for the low, bush-like, head-pruned vines, picking the ripe fruit, and the winemaking process, the neophytes were forbidden from drinking wine or other alcohol outside of communion and church services. Missions San Jose and Santa Clara would also supply grapes to Mission Dolores in present-day San Francisco, according to William Heath Davis. He praised the wine made from those grapes in 1833. I visited the Mission Dolores frequently during our stay at the port here, was always kindly received by the Padre, and drank as fine red California wine as I ever have since. Manufactured at the Mission from grapes brought from the missions of Santa Clara and San Jose. He also said, The wine which they made at the missions was of a superior quality and equal to any that I have drank elsewhere. San Francisco is much too cold and foggy for its own grape production. Cuttings from Mission San Jose were planted as the first vineyard at Mission San Francisco de Solano in Sonoma. The missions were secularized as Mexico broke away from Spain and thus began a new phase of the California Rancho period. During the Mexican War for Independence starting in 1810, the missions were even more on their own as the war took precedence and the flow of goods and supplies to them dwindled. In 1834, Mission San Jose was secularized, and large grants of former mission properties and surrounding areas were being distributed by the Mexican government. Importantly, naturalized Mexican citizens were able to receive these land grants also. They weren't limited to former soldiers, mission workers, and prominent citizens like the earlier Spanish land grants. Mexico gave out many more land grants than the Spanish did in early California. These were the Californios, Spanish-speaking citizens of California, usually of Spanish descent by way of Mexico. Jose de Jesus Vallejo was the head of an early and prominent family in the area. He was chosen as the administrator to sell the mission properties. The mission was carved into four ranchos, Rancho Agua Caliente in 1836, Rancho Arroyo de Alameda in 1842, Rancho Petrero de los Cerritos in 1844, and Rancho Ex Mission San Jose in 1846. In one writer's words, the isolation of the Californios lasted just long enough to allow certain quirks to develop. They had their own colloquialisms, their own style of dance, their own Spanish titles of Don and Doña, and their own style of food. Adobe homes surrounded by adobe and cactus walls, land rich but money poor, working mostly on a trade and barter system. Cattle hides and tallow were common currency at the time. The food, a mixture of Spanish and Mexican, but working with California's climate. Figs, olives, and chili peppers were some of the most loved ingredients and of course the grill for any fiesta. Peonage was practiced on some of the ranchos with the descendants of the Mission Ohlone. At best it can be seen as indentured servitude and at worst slavery, and it was totally legal at the time. Although the rancho period lives on in the memory of the state, it was over nearly as soon as it began. In January of 1848, gold was discovered in California. A month later, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, concluding the Mexican-American War and giving California and much of the Southwest to the United States. 
The treaty said that the United States would honor the land grants given up by Spain and Mexico, but it was on the grantee to prove what they owned. The grant process was imprecise from a geographical perspective. Boundaries were marked by seasonal creek, or maybe a cattle trail, a large oak tree, ditches, hills, or sometimes a pile of rocks, maybe with a cow or sheep skull set on top of it. Little of the land was fenced beyond the immediate living areas. These battles went on for years in the court system with appeals on both sides. Many of the cash-poor but land-rich Californios having to sell off portions of land to pay for lawyers, sometimes trading land directly with these lawyers for dubious legal services. Much of the land was taken by squatters, original documentation was lost, or there were long waits to receive needed paperwork from Mexico City. As a result, much of this land was divided up into smaller plots over the years. This area was never part of the gold rush per se, but it did serve that community by growing fruits like pears, limes, peaches, grapes, and more to sell to San Francisco and further out mining towns. The nurseries would ship young pear, apple, peach, apricot, and citrus trees to these frontier towns as well. An anecdote from Mr. William Sim, an early settler whose property the Shin family later purchased, was that in 1856 when peaches were selling for a dollar each in San Francisco, Sim hired a man to watch his trees all night, fearing that his peaches might be stolen. In the morning, the man and all the peaches were both gone. The mission itself served as a general store, news exchange, and meeting and resting point for many making the long trek to the gold fields or returning from them, usually goldless. After secularization, the vineyards mostly fell into disrepair and neglect. In 1849, a relative of Jean-Louis Vignes, the wine magnate of Los Angeles at the time and owner of Aliso Vineyards, made about 100 gallons of wine from the old mission vineyards, but didn't continue past that. Their last name, of course, fittingly means vines in French. Elias Lyman Beard of Indiana started the old mission vineyard back up with John Horner in 1850 with $30,000 and a sketchy title to the Rancho X Mission land grant. It was originally deeded to Andres Pico of the prominent Pico family and Juan Alvarado. The Pico family for a time was among the most powerful in California. Starting with the De Anza expedition, the family line would contain governors and mayors and many land grants in the Los Angeles and San Diego areas. Beard was one of the earliest American settlers in Alameda County. He was somehow able to obtain from Andres Pico the original mission compound except for the church and priest's quarters, but including the orchards and vineyards. After purchase, he promptly fenced in the rancho with redwood boards, opened a general store, and rebuilt some of the quarters as his home. He planted grains, potatoes, fruits, and vines, tended the orchards and existing vineyards, and restored the mission's old grist mill on the adjacent creek. In 1851, they sold $16,000 worth of grapes, and Horner sold his shares to Beard, who continued on until 1858. By then, the archdiocese had regained the disputed title to the mission lands, and Beard moved across the street to what would later be called Palmdale. Beard's involvement would stall when grain and potato prices dropped, and the Civil War and his work with John C. Fremont called. 
When he returned in 1865, he got a clean title to former Mission Land and had a good run for a few years. His grant was much larger than any other ex-Mission grant, over 3,500 acres, or about 10% of the original Rancho Ex-Mission land was awarded to him and his stepson, Henry Ellsworth. Described as a man of grand schemes and noble visions, Beard's investments had always been somewhat suspect. Bad investments plagued him. Oil schemes, mining stocks. Beard had sold much of his property by 1878, and by 1880, when he passed away, the title of his bankrupt property went to a French-American bank and insurance program. This insurance program, the precursor to the French-American Bank of San Francisco, would purchase distressed properties and subdivide them into differently sized plots. Juan Gallegos, or John Gallegos as he was sometimes referred, was able to purchase some of these plots for $150,000. In addition to the approximately 610 acres of vineyard and winery land, he owned an additional 4,000-plus acres in the area. He had made his fortune in coffee and the banking business in Costa Rica. Part of a prominent family, his father was sent by King Carlos of Spain and eventually became Costa Rica's first president. His wife, Julia Montalegre, was from another prominent early Costa Rican family. Her father was also a former president. In 1872, his wife and he had moved to San Francisco, eventually having seven children before moving the 45 miles down to Fremont. After a short stay, he moved to Nicaragua and took over a struggling coffee plantation, turned it around, and sold it off to move back. Gallegos was said by Joaquin Miller, poet of the Sierras, to be a man of indomitable spirit and enterprise. Gallegos dedicated three acres of his 4,539 acres, 610 of them under vine, to an experimental station for the University of California. 450 acres of the 610 were planted to Zinfandels, with an S on the end. So maybe all Zin, but that can also be a clue to a field blend. Carignan, Mataro, Alicante Boucher... Petit Syrah and other common field blend grapes were present in the area at the time. Cabernet Sauvignon, Tanat, and White Riesling made up the other 160 acres. 25 total varieties were planted in the experimental plot that Gallegos set aside for university use. Most of the hillside soil was an upland adobe type, shallow and clay-like that can get cracking hard in the summer months. As the vineyard worked its way down towards Mission Creek, the soil got lighter as the adobe mixed with the alluvial silt of the creek. Moving through some of the plantings in the valleys, the soil was a darker, calcareous type, lighter than the adobe. The southern side of the vineyard had very light sand mixed in with the heavier adobe. Gallegos built a gravity-fed three-and-a-half-story winery in 1884 with a tank capacity of a million gallons. Supplying its own steam power, it measured 240 feet by 110 feet. Production was 250,000 gallons in its first full vintage of 1886. The structure and additional caves dug deep into the hillside. This allowed wagons on top of the small hill to dump their grapes for processing and fermenting, the wine working its way down the stories until it was time for bottling. Fermentation on the third floor cellaring and blending on the second, 
aging on the first. The top half story was used for the engines and other machines to drive the plant. Located just 100 yards off the Southern Pacific Railroad tracks, he utilized a spur track to move his bottled wine to the station. Eventually, a two-mile olive tree-lined road led to the winery. They would use it for horse racing, too. Joaquin Miller gives a great description of the winery and grounds. Miller had last been here when it was still part of the mission. Out of this labyrinth of lawn and landscape gardening is an olive avenue nearly a mile in length, which brings the visitor to Irvington, the railway station and opposite the winery and distillery. The storage capacity is 1 million gallons. Once inside this enormous cellar, a line of splendid oak cooperage presents itself. There are 507 tanks holding 1,700 gallons each, saddled by 300 casks holding 800 gallons apiece. There are 114 fermenting vats with a capacity of 2,500 gallons, all in use during the vintage. The winery is built in a hillside where there are excellent opportunities for tunneling. There's also a large distillery on the premises. About 90% of the wine made is claret, the remainder being white and sweet wines. We know Gallegos grew Zinfandel, Columbard, Trousseau, Charbono, Mataro, Franken-Riesling, Claret, Cabernet Sauvignon, Mondus, and others. Various rootstock trials were also conducted at his vineyards by the University of California. It takes a lot of money to run all this, and Gallegos was constantly on the edge of ruin. In 1887, he formed the Gallegos Wine Company, he would own 49% and put up the winery as collateral. His wife's cousin, Carlos Montalegre, a San Francisco merchant, and some other smaller investors would own the rest. Gallegos would retain control of his vineyards, but the winery would be controlled by the larger concern. Professor Eugene Hilgard of the University of California became a director of the company. Their 1887 production equaled about 400,000 gallons, or nearly half the production in the Mission San Jose area. An issue with Gallegos was that he had 450 acres of Zinfandel, and not enough tank space. Grapes would routinely become overripe as they struggled during harvest to keep up with picking and fermenter space. This is something we touched on in the episodes about the University of California experiment stations but his grapes would routinely be judged overripe or otherwise damaged during the trials. Many of his wines were ending up off-dry or with stressed and slow fermentations and bacterial issues. His purchase of the first pasteurizer in California was the solution as far as he saw it. It would come from France, and Hilgard loved this new piece of technology. Competition, a low wine market, and some IRS issues brought Gallegos' wine business to a close, and it was sold to the company run by Carlos Montalegre, who sold it to his own Palmdale winery in 1892. In the 90s, the vineyard started suffering from phylloxera, with the depressed wine market compounding business matters. For the 1893 harvest, the newly coined Palmdale winery processed 2,400 tons of grapes, owned 600 acres of vineyards, and had one and a quarter million gallons in tank. From the 1894 to 1899 vintages, Palmdale became part of the California Wine Association, or CWA. The winery building was leased to the CWA starting in 1900. Palmdale Winery divided up much of the vineyard land in 1904, 
selling parcels at a time, some for ranches, some for vineyards, some for housing. Henry Lackman and his firm Lackman Jacoby purchased the winery in 1905. Lackman Jacoby was originally nicknamed the Wine Trust as they fought against the CWA, but eventually joined the group and expanded from the remote Fresno area into Sonoma, Alameda, and Santa Clara. Gallegos lived just north of the winery for the rest of his life, raising limes, avocados, and bananas, trying to rebuild his fortune. In 1905, at the age of 72, he had an accident falling down a flight of stairs and passed away soon after. The winery building was destroyed in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Something Gallegos didn't know and couldn't have known is that he dug his winery into the Hayward Fault. That hillside that made the winery work so well was actually a pressure ridge for the destructive fault. This is how he was able to build a three-story winery in the location he did. The canary palms that gave the winery its name still sway over the ruins. The Gallegos winery was well known for its production size and quality. For a moment, it was the largest in the world. It was praised by Charles Shin, who we first encountered in episode 24, working for the University of California and documenting its experiment stations. In 1889, he called it one of the first-rate wineries in California. Whether it was true or hometown pride, we don't know, but Shin himself was the son of a pioneer and famous horticulturist and grew up only a few miles from the winery. Although the Shin family wasn't known for grapes, I think it gives great context to see what inspired Charles to take the path in life that he did. The Shin family moved to the Niles area in 1856 from Texas. Niles was called Vallejo Mills at the time for the flour mill that the family had built. Quick aside about a couple words we just heard. Vallejo Mills was previously owned by Mariano Vallejo's older brother. Mariano was one of the most powerful of the rancho owners. He laid out the town of Sonoma, California, including its famous square. Was a centerpiece of the Bear Flag Revolt, first as a prisoner, and then in helping to establish the state of California and he even donated land for the first capital. Niles is now a quaint district of Fremont. It's claimed to fame that, for a time during the days of silent films, a large western movie studio shot hundreds of films there. Charlie Chaplin shot a lot of films in Niles also, including The Tramp. President Andrew Jackson signed 150 acres over to the Shin family for use as a farm and nursery in 1867. By the early 1870s, his father James had established a successful nursery and was filling railroad cars with thousands of young fruit trees to sell in the newly established California towns. They were even importing mandarin and peach trees from Japan to expand the variety of offerings. Charles was in one of the first classes at the new University of California and then attended Johns Hopkins for another two years, rooming with Woodrow Wilson. He chose to become a teacher before moving into anthropology. His works studied the mining camps of early California and their laws and customs. Moving into the newspaper business, he wrote for papers on both sides of the country, edited magazines, and became head of the state's horticultural society before becoming inspector general of the California Experiment Stations, which is where we last ran into him and his writings. After the experiment stations were abandoned, 
His wife Julia and he moved to North Fork, California, where he became the head forest ranger for the Department of the Interior. Only moving from his home, Peace Cabin, shortly before his death, Julia worked alongside him, becoming one of the first women employed by the Forest Service. An 11,000-foot mountain in the Sierra Nevada range bears his name. It is in the middle of nowhere. The ranch was taken over by his younger brother Joseph in 1890, focusing on pears and helping craft the legislation that allowed water districts to be started. He then created the first water district in 1913. The Shin Ranch was continuously farmed by the family for over 100 years. Much of its land has been donated over the years for parks, veterans memorials, and schools. Eugene Hilgard from the University of California was friends with Gallegos and eventually purchased 30 acres from him to build his Dos Encinas estate. It was said by Maynard Amarine that this estate kept Hilgard in debt for years. In the viticultural reports of the mid-1880s, Hilgard begins speaking about the grapes growing in his vineyard and submitting samples and practical experience with Barbera and rootstock trials, too. Alphonse Reher from Alsace purchased the property from Hilgard around 1900 and produced excellent wine on a small scale. The Reher winery operated until 1953, first by Reher himself and then his son-in-law. Just to the west was 39 acres planted by French immigrant Paul Duvaux. Starting in the 1880s, he planted Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc, as well as Malbec, yielding about 35,000 gallons a year at his winery. The vineyard fell to phylloxera in the early part of the 1900s. Only some buildings remained. A former winemaker for Gallegos also purchased some of his former property. Edward Grau was from Switzerland and first worked for the Napa Valley Wine Company. In 1888, he and Emil Werner purchased 21 planted acres from Gallegos. Calling the winery and vineyard Los Amigos, it was situated between Hilgard's Dos Encinas and the 39 acres of Davos. They replanted with new cuttings from France, mostly Cabernet Sauvignon, and won numerous awards at the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition held in newly rebuilt San Francisco. During Prohibition, much like other vineyards, they kept the lights on by shipping grapes to the East Coast. Coming out of Prohibition, the winery was purchased by Robert Mayock, whose family ran it well until about 1955. Mayock planted Pinot Noir at the vineyard in 1943, and then some new Cabernet cuttings obtained from La Cuesta Vineyard in Woodside in 1945. Winning medals for his Zinfandel wines along the way and producing a sherry sack wine for a time. The San Jose News hired Mayock to write California's first wine column. After he was killed in a car accident in 1945, Lee Stewart of Souverain purchased the Los Amigos label and produced wine at the same site until 1952. George Zoll had also been a winemaker for Juan Gallegos. In 1890, he purchased 15 acres from Gallegos on the west side of Los Amigos Vineyard. Charles Bond had another 35 acres across the road from Zoll planted with Zinfandel and Cabernet that he put in during the 1880s. He was in the business until around 1900. Three miles south of the mission, Clement Colombet, originally of Nice, France, settled in the area in 1844, running a general store and later supplying food, 
dry goods, and cattle to gold seekers. At the time, he was making wine on only a small scale, but it would start receiving awards. In 1856, he bought 9,500 acres of land, the entire Agua Caliente land grant from its original owner. He planted 60,000 vines that first year, and another 60,000 in 1863. Making good use of the natural volcanic hot spring that gave this grant its name, he also opened a resort hotel. Pierre Pellier was a notable employee of Colombes in the late 50s and early 60s. The Pellier brothers imported many grapes to this part of California from their native France, including Movedra, of which they're probably the first, but also all the red Bordeaux grapes, Cabernet Sauvignon, Anne Franc, Petit Verdot, Merlot, and Malbec. Also others like Follet Blanche, Chasselas, and Columbard. They were an early importer of Pinot Noir also. Maybe not the first, but one of them. It was most likely them, Herosthe of Buena Vista, or Charles Lefranc of Almaden. They would also import the small French prune plum that was a powerhouse of Santa Clara Valley agriculture for the next 100 years. The family eventually married with the Marisou family, creating a still unbroken run of winemakers. In 1863, Colombe was making 24,000 gallons of wine, both red and white. Hotel revenue plummeted when the 1868 earthquake severely damaged the main structure and some of the outbuildings. This quake was called the Great Quake until the larger 1906 quake happened. It was only the second large earthquake in California during the American period. Alfred Cohen, the owner of the San Francisco and Alameda Railroad, purchased the property, fixed the buildings back up, and ran track directly to the hotel, making it even easier for guests to arrive. A year later, the Central Pacific Railroad bought out Cohen's smaller railway. Leland Stanford, owner of the Central Pacific and part of the Big Four Railroad conglomerate, took over the hotel and added a new winery. Calling it the Warm Springs Resort and Hotel, it operated on 1,000 acres. Josiah Stanford, one of Leland's brothers, was installed as the winemaker. Josiah had property of his own he had purchased from a French settler who had 75 acres of grapes planted. He and his sisters owned an additional 35 acres also. 1871 was the first vintage, and in only five years, they were up to 50,000 gallons a year. Leland soon turned his attention to his ranch across the bay in Menlo Park and Vina in Tahama County, a giant of a vineyard and a giant expanse and failure for one of the country's richest men. In 1886, he deeded his half of the property over to Josiah. The winery was said to have the latest inconveniences and most up-to-date equipment, all cared for by his Swiss-born cellarmaster, Louis Jeanchard. Josiah added a distillery to the property in 1888. The Warm Springs winery consisted of 320,000 gallons of wine and the 275 acres of vineyard now. Most of his wine was never outstanding in quality and was sold in bulk to St. Louis, New York, Chicago, and New Orleans. But they did have some good varieties planted and their Burgundy was one of the top wines for a large San Francisco wine house. The whites were better known than the reds, Riesling especially outstanding. Josiah's true dream was to make the Warm Springs Resort and Hotel an elegant destination resort to rival the finest of San Francisco hospitality. 
The signed guest book still exists with names like P.L. Pico, the last Mexican governor of California, Senator and newspaper magnate George Hearst, Domingo Ghirardelli, the chocolate maker, and Adolf Sutro, who was the mayor of San Francisco. Josiah passed away in 1890 and Leland only three years later. Like many of the other vineyards, Phylloxera started to ravage it in the middle of that decade. In 1945, the Weebel family purchased the property for their winery and replanted over 100 acres. Among the new plantings were Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, and Chardonnay. Specializing in sparkling production, they remained there until 1996, even using the old winery building when they relocated to the Woodbridge area of Lodi. They were purchased in July of 2023 by Rack and Riddle. Just south of here was the smaller 32-acre Willow Glen Vineyard and winery owned by Conrad Weller. It operated from 1880 to about 1900, producing mostly Zinfandel. Just south of the Mission and at the base of the foothills was the Palmer Winery, run by Joseph Palmer. Palmer imported 10,000 cuttings from France and Spain and planted his Peak Vineyard. In 1863, the independently wealthy Charles MacGyver of Montreal, Canada moved to the area. He purchased the Palmer Winery in 1888. First planted to Mission Vines in 1850, MacGyver went on a replanting spree with other varieties until he had a 350-acre vineyard, and then a 1,000-acre vineyard and the largest winery in Alameda County. He held back around two-thirds of each vintage for five years of extra aging. As Phylloxera started in on the vineyards, McIver replanted again and changed the winery name to Linda Vista. Two-thirds of the vineyard was Zinfandel, Cabernet Sauvignon, Petit Syrah, Semillon, Alicante Boucher, and recently made up the rest. Hotels, restaurants, and the Southern Pacific Railroad were some of his largest clients. The winery continued to operate into the 1900s, but the vineyards eventually succumbed to phylloxera and never reopened after Prohibition. McIver was the first to import and plant Alicante Boucher and Petit Syrah in California in 1884. He was most likely the one who gave it that name, changing it from the original Durif. Francois Durif had originally crossed the Syrah and Pellersan grapes to create a new variety resistant to powdery mildew. McIver also imported some Syrah, Merlot, and Malbec. Although Elias Beard died nearly broke, his son, John L. Beard, inherited a large fortune from his grandfather. He graduated from the California College in 1868 and was a classmate with Charles Wetmore, who we met in episode 24 and 26 when discussing the University of California and its experiment stations. The Marciano Vineyard was planted by Beard and his business partner, Samuel Putnam, about a mile south of Stanford's Warm Springs Winery on 250 acres of land. 20 acres were planted to table grapes. It's said by Joaquin Miller to be named after an Ohlone chief who had lived near the mission grounds, but that man has been known to stretch the truth. In 10 years, they were up to 140,000 gallons, but the business fell apart in 1903 after Beard's death. Beard wasn't the only one with descendants entering the wine industry. Albert J. Salazar, a nephew of Juan Gallegos, had his own vineyard and winery named Los Cerritos. The location was at St. Mary of the Palms, at the end of a long avenue of palm trees planted by Juan, 
only a half mile west of the mission. The vineyard was planted in the 1880s, and he made about 100,000 gallons a year. A superior claret was his signature wine. Some of the ruins of these wineries are still visible. The Shin House is open for tours. Stanford's winery sits on Stanford Lane in Fremont. California Historical Landmark number 642. Someone stole the plaque in 2008 for the bronze it was made from. The Gallegos Winery is at Osgood and Washington Streets, the property now owned by Bart. There's a bunch of palm trees near both wineries still. Ruins of the DeVoe Winery still stand. Much of that property is now Sabercat Historical Park, named for the amount of fossils found here in the 1940s through the 60s. Prehistoric horses, sabercats, mammoths, rodents, and a new species of four-pronged antelope. The stone foundation of the second Vallejo flour mill is still there too. A wall of the Los Amigos winery is used as part of a carport at a home. Fremont, which today is the fourth largest city in the Bay Area, has a couple wineries and a few vineyards, but nowhere close to the approximately 2,500 acres of vines it had in 1893 before Phylloxera kicked in with all its force. There were over 50 wineries and vineyards at the time, so many that Washington Boulevard was named Winery Road. For a time, it was considered a leader in fine wines, up there with Napa and Sonoma. Frank Schoonmaker was a fan of the wines from here, and Charles Shin wrote, There is no more important vineyard district in California, all things considered, than that which lies around the old Mission San Jose. Thanks for listening today. Found this really interesting topic and it fits in with some other recent episodes and some future ones also. I think it's fascinating how the wine industry surrounding this area had huge players with quality and quantity to match the best of the time and how it all essentially vanished. Fremont today is an extension of Silicon Valley with manufacturing of semiconductors, telecommunications equipment, and auto assembly plants while also acting as a bedroom community of sorts for the Silicon Valley. Thanks to my stepbrother Jeff for helping me with some French pronunciations, even though I still might have butchered them. As Harvest winds down here, we'll be getting back to sort of the meat and potatoes of the podcast and interviewing some more great winemakers and farmers, authors, etc. We should be doing that real soon. You can follow the podcast on wherever you're listening and the Instagram at IndieWine Podcast. And feel free to email IndieWinePodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or feedback. If you could tell your wine friends about the podcast too and help spread the word, I'd really appreciate it. Rating or subscribing helps too. There's also now a Patreon setup if you feel like supporting the podcast monetarily to hopefully allow for more episodes, more travel, and to help defray other costs. The link is in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode. Have a good one.